there was a, a mom whose eight-year-old son came to her and said, Mommy, I have a question. Where did I come from? And the mother thought, oh, oh, man, I thought I was going to have at least a few more years before I had to talk about this. But she sits her son down and starts telling him about the birds and the bees, and he looks at her with a rather puzzled look on his face, and she says, well, son, why do you want to know where you come from? And he says, well, I was talking to Billy next door, and he said that, that he came from Chicago, so I wanted to know where I came from. Today we're continuing our series called The Big Picture, and it's about developing a Christian worldview. And once again, your worldview is how you believe the world works and how you fit into it. And your worldview answers some really fundamental and foundational questions. And here's the question we're going to explore this morning. Where did I come from? And how you answer that question has tremendous impact in your life. It determines how you see yourself, how you see other people. It, it really determines what you believe about God, what you believe about your goals and your dreams and even your future. And there are basically two answers to this question. So what we're going to do, we're going to explore each of these answers and their implications. So here's one answer to the question, where did I come from? And this is on your outline. Here's answer number one. I evolved through the random interaction of matter over long periods of time. Now, this is known as the classic theory of what? Yeah, the theory of evolution, often associated with this man, Charles Darwin, who was a contemporary of Abraham Lincoln. Many people don't know that as a young man, he was actually a theology student, and he published this book on origin of species that has dramatically impacted our world. I mean, if you go to a public school, if you go to a public university, you are going to be taught the theory of evolution. When I was a, a student at FAU, I was working on my undergraduate degree in biology. All of my professors embraced an evolutionary world view. I was in the, the vast minority because I had a, a different point of view. But I want to do this this morning. I, I just want to point out two what I consider to be common sense objections to the theory of evolution. And then I want to talk about an alternative approach to the answer of where I came from. But first of all, um, I want to explain a concept um, known as irreducible complexity. And what that simply means is this. For something to work, all of its parts have to be present at the same time. Now, here's an example to make this idea more concrete. What is this? What is that? You guys know what that is, right? It's a mousetrap. Now, for a mousetrap to work, all of its parts have to be present at the same time. If I take a part away, the mousetrap won't work. And so this really kind of flies in the face of this theory that things had to evolve slowly over time because there was a design for the mousetrap, right? Somebody invented the mousetrap and said, I need all these parts together at the same time or it won't work. Now, here's the thing. If you think about certain parts of your body, um, the same thing applies. Think about your eye. Your eye is really a sophisticated camera, isn't it? And it has all kinds of parts. There's a lens and there's a retina and there's the optic nerve. Your eye won't work unless all of the parts are present at the same time. And, and here's another thing to consider. Your eye was designed to do something. What was your eye designed to do? Yes, to see. And here's my simple question to those who embrace an evolutionary worldview. If there is design in this world, if there is design in the human body, doesn't that imply that there must be a designer? Now here's another, what I believe is a common sense objection to evolutionary theory, and it has to do with this. Does anybody recognize what this is? 
That's DNA, exactly. And scientists, all kinds of scientists, would agree that this is an amazing code used for the transmission of genetic information. Now think about this. Think about what happens when a human baby is formed in the womb. I mean, you have this one cell, right, and then it starts to divide and divide and divide, and that turns into millions and billions and even trillions of cells, and these cells have to figure out what they're going to become. A bone cell, a blood cell, a brain cell, a lung cell, a skin cell, whatever it happens to be. And not only that, this is really amazing. They have to figure out where they're supposed to be located in the body. Right? Because if you're a brain cell, where do you have to go? To the brain. If you're going to be in the toe, you've got to find your way to the toe. How does this happen? Well, largely through the transmission of information encoded in the DNA molecule. Now, here's the thing. Scientists, evolutionary scientists, all would admit DNA is an amazing code. And here's my question. How can you have this sophisticated, elegant, amazing code without a code writer? It doesn't make sense that a code like this could have developed randomly over time. Now, I could talk for a long time about objections to the theory of evolution, but I'm going to stop with those two. Because here's something that's so crucial for us to understand. Ideas have consequences. All ideas have consequences in the real world. And here are some of the implications of evolutionary theory. And this is on your outline. Number one, human beings have no inherent purpose, meaning, or value if evolutionary theory is correct. Here's another implication. There's no life after death. And another, there's no accountability to God for your actions. And here's the fourth, there's really no foundation for ethics. You see, if there's no God, if everything that happens to us is just this chain of random events, then, then your life and my life really don't matter. And the logical thing to do is to find the highest bridge we can and jump off. And there was a French philosopher, her na his name was um, Albert Camus, and he said this, that the logical outcome to atheism is despair. But I'm thankful that there is another answer to the question, where did I come from? And here's answer number two. I was created by God in his image. Created by God in his image. Look at this verse in the first chapter of the Bible. It says this, So God created man, and that's often translated mankind, in his own image, and the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what does that mean? It means that every single person who's ever lived on this planet is created in the image of God. But what does that mean? Now, let me begin by telling you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we're little gods. All right? New Age philosophy says that you're divine. We're not divine. Okay? We're not little mini-me gods. We are created in the image of God, which means that we were made to resemble God. We reflect um, some of God's attributes. And maybe the best way to think about it is this. There are certain ways that we resemble God. Mentally, morally, and socially. Because when you think about it, like God, we have the ability to reason, the ability to make choices, the ability to, cre to create things. And that means that every time somebody writes a song, makes an invention, um, enjoys a sunset, names their pet, all of these things reflect that we are made in the image of God. And then you have the moral dimension of life. When God made Adam and Eve, they were created with perfect innocence, and righteousness, that is, they had a right relationship with God. But that was lost when they disobeyed God. But even so, we see that every human being has a conscience. And we talked about this last week. 
So every time a person feels guilty, every time a person says, oh, this is the right thing to do, uh, every time a just law is written, that's a reflection that we are made in the image of God. And then we have the social arena. God made us so that we would have a need for connection, connection with him, connection with other people. And it's really fascinating when you look at this verse in the book of Genesis, it says, let us make mankind in our image. Now, what's going on there? Let us make mankind in our image? Well, that's a reference to the Trinity. Because the Bible clearly teaches there's one God, but this one God exists in how many persons? Three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, in a way that we can't fully understand, God actually exists in relationship with himself. You might call God the eternal community of three. And here's the thing, because we're made in the image of God, we were made for relationships. That means that every time that you make a friend, every time somebody gets married, every time you hug a kid, when you come to church and share your lives with each other, that's a reflection that you are made in the image of God. But here's a really important question. Why did God make us in his image? And here's the answer. So we could know him and love him. And this is what really distinguishes human beings from the rest of the animal kingdom. Did you know this? Your cat is not made in the image of God. Your dog is not made in the image of God. Um, they weren't created with the capacity to know God and love God. They don't feel this need to pray. They don't feel a need to confess their sins. Although sometimes I think it might do my dog some good to do that. Um, so here's the question. What are the implications of believing that we're made in the image of God? Well, here's the first. is simply this, that every human being has a purpose. Every single person has a purpose. There was a man named Dr. Hugh Moorhead. He was a philosophy professor at Northeastern Illinois University. And one time he did this. He wrote to 250 of the the best-known philosophers and scientists in the world, and ask them this question, what is the purpose of life? Now, here was the remarkable response. None of them knew. One of them said, hey, Dr. Moorhead, if you figure it out, would you let me know? And, and listen to some of the responses. One was from Isaac Asimov. Is that name familiar to anybody? Science fiction writer, I grew up reading his stories as a kid. He said this, as far as I can see, there is no purpose to life. And then there's another man, his name is Joseph Heller. He said this, I have no answers to the meaning of life and I no longer want to search for any. Now, church, those kinds of responses are the logical outcome to an evolutionary worldview. But in the Bible, the voice of truth tells us a different story about where we have come from, that God made us in his image. And think about this. God has a purpose for everything he creates. Isn't that true? I mean, clouds have a purpose, trees have a purpose, mosquitoes have a purpose. I'm not sure what it is, but God knows. And, and like everything that God made, you and I have a purpose. You know, here's, here's something that's really important to remember, that um, from a human perspective, um, there may be unplanned pregnancies, but from God's perspective, there's never an unplanned person. Now, look at these verses from Psalm 139 says this, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. You saw me, God, before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. And I love these words that God wrote to the prophet Jeremiah. 
He said, Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. In short, Jeremiah, I have a purpose for your life. And friends, God has a purpose for our lives. From the moment of conception to the moment that we die, God has a purpose for us. And that's why one of the realities of abortion is that it short-circuits God's purpose for human life. And that's true of euthanasia, the idea of mercy killing, assisted suicide. It short-circuits God's plan for a person's life. Because here's the reality. God knows what he wants to accomplish in you and through you. And here in short church is God's purpose for your life. Are you ready? It's really straightforward. He wants to make you and me like Jesus. That's what he wants to do. And think about this. Jesus, by his life, demonstrated the reality that the most important thing is to love God and to love people who are made in the image of God. And that leads us to another implication of this idea that we're made in God's image. Every human being was designed for dignity. Every human being was designed for dignity. This belief is essential, is the essential foundation for ethics. There was an African-American man who got up one morning and um, tried to go to church. And he got to this certain church, and they refused to let him in. And he was really upset, so he called the pastor and said, Hey, pastor, I tried to come to the church that you lead, and they wouldn't let me in. What's going on? And the pastor said, well, sir, I think you just need to, to pray about it. I said, okay. Well, a few weeks later, um, this man was, was out shopping, and he ran into the pastor. And uh, the pastor said, well, did you pray about it? The man said, yep, I did. And the pastor said, well, what did God say? And the man said, uh, God told me, um, son, don't worry about it. I've been trying to get into that church for 20 years, and they won't let me in either. Church, listen carefully. There is no room for prejudice in a Christian worldview. There is no room for prejudice in a Christian worldview. Why? Because every single person has been designed for dignity. And this is, this is what we read in the book of Genesis, where we, we read that people are made in the image of God. Now, this is really important, and I'm just going to touch on it briefly, but, you know, whenever you read the Bible, um, you're reading words that weren't, written directly to you. You realize that, right? There's a different audience, and there's an author, and we need to figure out who that is to figure out how to apply it to our life. So when you read the words in Genesis 1, they're written by Moses, but who are they written to? The nation of Israel. Now, why is Moses telling the Israelites that they're made in the image of God? And here's why. Because they are living in a situation where they have no dignity. They are slaves in Egypt. You know, the, the taskmasters, the Egyptian um, slave drivers, they don't care about these Hebrews, these Jews. I mean, if they die building the, the pyramids of Pharaoh, big deal. So what? Who cares? And this is the same mindset that led to the Holocaust. And what Moses is doing is he's refuting that worldview. And he's saying, listen, you were designed for dignity. You are made in the image of God. Now, why is he telling them this? Because there's something that Moses wants them to do. See, God comes to Moses and says, I want you to lead my people to freedom. I want you to lead them out of slavery to the promised land. But Moses has to convince them to do that. Because sometimes it is so hard to leave the world that you know, 
even though it's a terrible world, and move into the world that God's calling you to. But here's the thing. Moses wants them to follow him to a new life and a new land and leave their life of slavery. Now, what does that mean for us? It means this, that Jesus is calling us to follow him, to move toward a new life that he's promised, to leave our slavery to sin, to the choices that have broken our hearts and broken our lives and broken our relationship with God. So you see that this idea of being made in the image of God is so incredibly important, and it leads us to this next point on your outline here, that even though, even though every human being has been made in the image of God, that image has been marred by sin. The good news is that through Christ, God is restoring the image of God in his children. God is restoring the image of God in his children. When I was in high school, my very first car was a 57 Chevy. It was yellow. It was two-door. I miss having that car. Um, my wife, Chris, and I used to go on dates in that car. We weren't married in high school, by the way, just so you know. We got married young, but we were just dating in high school. And I worked on that car, getting ready for date night. And, and you think about this. Think about how hard people work to restore cars. I mean, that's a big deal for a lot of people. Now, here's a, a 57 Chevy that needs a lot of love, right? I mean, it is marred and scarred, and it just looks terrible. But with enough time and effort, it could look like this, right? Do you realize that's true of you and me? That we are marred and scarred by sin, and yet God is in the process of restoring his children to our original design, which was to reflect the image of God. And the story in this book tells us that. Think about this. Adam and Eve are made in the image of God. They have a perfect image of God in them. And then they rebel against God. And that image of God inside them becomes marred. And now that, that marred image of God is passed to every one of their descendants, including us. And here's the reality. Even though we're marred and scarred by sin, we still bear the image of God. But the image has been broken. And we have broken lives and broken dreams and a broken relationship with God. That's how we come into this world. And, and here's what the Bible tells us, that, that our sin has separated us from God, that because God is just and holy, he has to punish our sin. And church, what is the punishment for sin? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Now here is where you have a collision, an absolute collision between two competing worldviews. Because the theory of evolution says that death is natural. Anybody see the movie The Lion King? Okay. <laughs> Some of us have seen it a gazillion times, if you have kids or grandkids. And there's, there's a circle of life. You know, Elton John wrote this beautiful song, right? Listen, death is not your friend. Death is not natural. Death is not something just to be accepted. The Bible says that death is an enemy. That death is a curse that fell on Adam and Eve and you and me and all of creation because of their disobedience. And that Jesus came to our world to reverse the curse. Jesus came to defeat death. And I'll tell you this, every time that I've had an encounter with death, when I was a paramedic and a firefighter, I saw so many people die. And as a pastor, I've had so many occasions to do funeral services. And I am so glad that it's true that Jesus came to defeat death. 
And so many of us know this. When somebody you love dies, it breaks your heart, doesn't it? And everything inside you screams, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Isn't that true? And you're right, it's not. And in those moments, Jesus comes to comfort us. It's like the story of, of Jesus going to Mary and Martha. Remember the story of Lazarus dies and Jesus comes after he dies and comforts Mary and Martha. And then he cries himself because his heart is broken. But listen, Jesus doesn't just come to this world to cry with us in the face of death. He comes to defeat death itself. And this is the centerpiece of a Christian worldview, that Jesus knows that things are not the way they're supposed to be, so he comes to change them. And so that's why he leaves his home in heaven. That's why he comes to our world. That's why Jesus lives a perfect life. And realize this, that Jesus, by his life, demonstrates the perfect image of God. He demonstrates our destiny because God wants us to become more and more like Jesus. And there's a beautiful passage. This is in the book of um, Ephesians where it says this about this, this new life that Jesus promises us if we will trust him and follow him. It says this, Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, here's what you need to do. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted, which is marred and scarred by, by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes because transformation begins in your, in your mind with your thoughts. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. If you're a Christian this morning, listen carefully. God's at work in your life. With all the stuff that's going on, God is using every single thing to change your heart and make you like Jesus, to make you more loving, more compassionate, more forgiving, and realize this, that God never wastes the pain in your life, ever. The Bible says that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so when life is hard, when life hurts, when the, when the pain pours in, here's what you need to do. Run to Jesus. Believe him, trust him, because Jesus says, Listen, when, you're, when you're a part of, of God's family, you have a new identity. It doesn't matter what other people say about you or think about you. What matters is what I say about you. And the truth is this. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You are a part of God's royal family. And you have a new potential. When you think about, well, what am I going to do? How's the future going to play out? Well, here's the thing. As you face an uncertain future, it's not uncertain to God. And here's the reality. God has placed his spirit in you, Christian. And that means that you can do things that you never thought you could do before. So listen, I know, I know some of you are going through some tough things right now. And I, I know this too. I just sense this in my spirit that there are people in this place who need to hear what I'm going to say right now. So listen carefully. Christian, God will never give up on you. So don't you ever give up on yourself. You keep believing. You keep trusting. You keep praying. Keep remembering that God is always at work in your life. And that brings us to this last implication of being made in the image of God. Every human being matters to God and therefore should matter to us. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Luke 15. And Luke wrote this biography of Jesus. And in this chapter, he begins by talking about um, how the religious leaders are complaining about the kind of company that Jesus keeps. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 15. It says, tax collectors and other 
notorious sinners. Isn't that a great phrase? Notorious sinners. They just got a reputation for being sinners. Often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So what does Jesus do? This is amazing. It says, so Jesus told them the story. See, from their point of view, these religious leaders, there's two kinds of people in the world, those who matter to God and those who don't. And in response to their prejudice and in response to their complaints about Jesus, he tells them not one story but three. Now, you might call this a a theological trifecta. Jesus is going to tell three stories and then he's going to hammer home the point. So the first story is this. There's a shepherd who has 100 sheep. One of the sheep wanders off. So what does the shepherd say? (laughs) See ya, wouldn't want to be ya. What does he do? He searches and searches till he finds this one lost sheep. Why? Because that one sheep matters to the shepherd. All the sheep do. Every single one. And then there's a story about a lady who loses a coin. She has 10 coins. She loses one. What does she say? Ah, I still got 90% of my money. (laughs) No. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She finds that one coin. Why? Because that one coin is valuable to her. And then Jesus tells this, this riveting story about a lost son. This young man who decides he's going to leave home, just reject his father's love. He's going to be the captain of his own fate. He's going to live life in the fast lane, and he ends up in a pig pen. And he comes to his senses, and he decides, hey, I've got to go home, and I've got to go back to my dad, and, and maybe he'll take me as a slave. I don't know. So he goes back home, and what does his father do? His father runs to meet him because he loves his boy so much. And what Jesus is saying is, this is how I love you. This is how your father in heaven loves you. And I can imagine, you know, the people that are hearing this story and and what Jesus is saying is, hey, prostitute. Man, I know you've got scars in your heart, but my Father in heaven loves you and so do I. Tax collector, yeah, you've, you've lived a life of deceit and deception. But I want you to know your Father in heaven loves you and so do I. Hey, religious leader, I know you're full of pride and selfishness. I know your heart's a mess too, but realize this, your Father in heaven loves you and so do I. And friends, consider this. If God's goal is to make us like Jesus, if that's what he's doing in the lives of his children, then that means that he wants us to really, really love people. The people that he places in our life. Because what did Jesus do? Jesus leaves his home in heaven and he comes to this world. He enters our world to show us how much God cares. So what should we do? We should enter the world of other people to show them how much we care, to show them how much God cares. But you know what? That's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Because sometimes we get so wrapped up in our own little world. We're just trying to keep our own head above water, and it's hard to reach out to the people around us. Let me ask you this. Real practical question. How many of you know the names of your neighbors? How many of you pray for your neighbors? How many of you go out of your way to engage them in conversation and learn their story? I was thinking this week, somebody came to Jesus, it was a lawyer actually, said, hey, um, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Remember the story that he told in response to that? About the man that gets beaten up, left for dead on the side of the road, and these religious guys walk right past, and then there's this Samaritan, somebody that you would think because of racial prejudice would walk right by, and he doesn't, he stops and he helps them, and Jesus says, hey, be like that guy. And friends, that's exactly the point of what God is telling us in Scripture here. He is at work restoring the image of God in us and and the way we see that play out 
practically is we really care about God, and we also care about the people that God's made. And that means that when you go to the restaurant, you don't just look past the server. You say, here's a person made in the image of God. When you check out in the grocery store, that cashier is made in the image of God. God wants you to care about everybody, the young and the old and the rich and the poor and the widow and the orphan. God wants you to care about people who are victims of prejudice and injustice and natural disasters. Listen, God wants our hearts to break when we see people who are broken by life. And here's the thing, church. Every single day, God gives us these incredible opportunities to reach out with care and compassion. And if we do that, here's what will happen. We will change the story of people's lives. This morning, Father, I just thank you so very much that Jesus entered our world to show us how much you love us. And God, would you give us the grace to follow his example and to enter the worlds of those around us to show them that we care and that you love them. And Lord, I pray this morning um, for those who are going through some really difficult times, um, who face an uncertain future. Lord, I pray that, that we would remember as your children that you're always at work in our life. And I pray that that would deeply encourage us, God, that you will use everything that happens for, for our good and for your glory. And Lord, I pray too for the person who maybe for the first time is realizing that, that they don't really know you, that they've never made a decision to follow Jesus. God, I pray that today everything in their life would change by making that simple choice to give their life to you. And Lord, if someone here this morning is sensing you calling them to do that, I, I pray that in their own words they just say, God, I need you. Um, my life's broken. I'm broken, God. And I believe that Jesus came to this world and lived the life that I couldn't because he loved me. And that that's why he went to a cross and died for me. And I believe that. And, and I want to follow him. God, thank you so much that you always run to rescue us. And Lord, I know I speak from personal experience. Um, I know what it's like to be far from you. I know what it's like to, to be an outsider looking in. And now I know what it's like to be a child of God, to be incredibly loved and forgiven and accepted. Lord, I pray for those of us who are believers that we'll remember that we have the most incredible story to share, the most incredible news to tell, that there is a God who loves us like nobody else. And God, I pray this, that our story, as we live it out, would always point people to your story, Lord Jesus. And God, as we conclude this service, as we sing this last song, I pray that it would just be a, a reminder that you've given us the best story to tell, the story of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.